Welcome to the Founders Keepers podcast, interviews exploring stories behind the founders of change-making businesses in medtech, biotech, and health tech, and what makes those founders tick. I'm your host, Dr. Grace Hatton, and this week I'm joined by Scott Montgomery, the Director and CEO of Advanced Health Intelligence. Now, this episode is a follow-on conversation from the previous Founders Keepers episode with Vlado Bosnak of Advanced Human Imaging, which has since undergone a merger with Welltech and appointed Scott as its new director and CEO, as well as rebranding to Advanced Health Intelligence. This is a B2B digital health company that offers biometric-enabled and data-driven health solutions, all from the comfort of your smartphone. The mobile phone-based tech can monitor vital signs, calculate body density, and identify chronic diseases. Scott is an established health industry leader with nearly two decades of experience spanning across APAC, Europe, and the US, and he has co-built two health enterprise companies to trade sale. He's also addressed industry-leading topics to audiences such as those at the United Nations on the value of interoperability in healthcare, the role of technology in closing health literature knowledge gaps, and the potential of biometric triage measurements using smartphones. In today's episode, we cover healthy skepticism, an in-depth talk about on-device body dimensioning and health analysis, and not giving advice until you've been asked for it at least three times. Let's get started. Scott, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I would love if, in your own words, you can tell me about yourself, what I need to know about you and your journey as an entrepreneur that's led you to where you are now. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for carving out some time to listen to me. Uh, Interesting story, as I suppose everyone thinks that their own is. Um, New Zealand-born exercise physiologist by trade and went through the typical path of um, sports performance, elite athletes, and uh, found myself in insurance. Um, I saw how broken it was, and uh, there were just holes everywhere of inefficiency. And so um, coming from a family where my father was very entrepreneurial, um, kind of had it in the bones. And so I set about with a few other like-minded people, built our first business um, that was putting health professionals inside workplaces, built that over eight years and sold that. And then I thought if we could wrap some technology around a new proposition, we could bring true accessibility and scale to a corporate offering in healthcare. Um, And that was what brought about my last company. And I'm here today, uh, recently acquired uh, and now the CEO of Advanced Health Intelligence, which is an incredibly exciting journey. So Hopefully that's as quick and short and sweet as you like, but there's lots of uh, nooks and crannies in there as I suppose everyone has. Well, absolutely. Uh, So let's focus on that. Let's dig down into advanced health intelligence. So tell me a little bit about it and essentially what its service offering is, how it helps to improve health outcomes, because that's obviously something you sound to be very passionate about. So AHI, Advanced Health Intelligence, is a NASDAQ ASX listed company. Um, So um, very well governed and regulated. Uh, we're a business which spans six countries uh, with staff around the world. It's a B2B model. Uh, it's a health technology um, uh, offering, and we offer digital health solutions to corporate partners. And they are typically um, and historically enterprise uh, employers, healthcare, uh, and insurance companies. And we're opening up the government um, segment at the moment in true population health. The uh, the technology itself is trying to bring as much of a um, a healthcare consult to a mobile phone. So I think where the IoT has done tremendous um, evolution and and carved a pathway here for accessibility to some of that health insights, um, the mobile phone is just ubiquitous. It's everywhere all of the time. We know how to use it, so there's very little user education. And so we've set about trying to bring as many of the metrics to a mobile phone. We use the camera and on-device processing um, to give a health assessment using biometrics for the individual. Um, and then we're using 
algorithmic coaching to help um, programmatize people towards a, um, a structured outcome. So very short and sweet, we take a biometric health assessment um, using the phone camera um, where we give a biometric report and then we um, encourage or facilitate people into a triage function, whether it's self-sustained programs or we connect them with telehealth care providers. And I was reading a little bit about uh, some of these technologies that you offer, which are fascinating as far as I'm concerned. Um, and there's one which is a transdermal optical imaging piece of software, which is attached to this technology. And the other one's a cardiovascular disease risk estimate, which would certainly be incredibly useful to me as a practicing clinician. So could you maybe delve a little bit deeper, walk me through how exactly these work um, and again, how they would impact me as a clinician and also my patients on the hospital ward in the GP practice? So for, a, um, I suppose, a, a start of the journey, we're, we're using the phone as a sensor. And if you, if you take a, um, a smartphone, sorry, a smartwatch, like an Apple Watch or a Garmin, um, inside there you've got um, different laser frequencies, PPG. Um, and so we, we use PPG in, in part of our assessment. Um, the TOI, Transdermal Optim, Optical Imaging, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, um, is a essentially it's a process that looks at different light refractions on the surface of the skin. So translucent by design is the skin, and so you can go through different depths, and depending on the frequency of the light, it's able to give back different information. So we can look at respiration rate, we can look at um, uh, at blood pressure indications for hypo and hypertension. Uh, we can look at heart rate and um, and irregular beats, arrhythmia. And so the TOI technology there is to capture that information, the science around it for the different thresholds for um, what is at risk and what is, is not. You know, we lean on the literature for that. And that's certainly your world as an MD um, where there, there are, you know, World Health Organizations and medical associations parameters around the world where um, you've got different thresholds for acceptable risk or unacceptable risk. And, and that's not our world. We're a sensor capture and a processor to then um, correlate against those risk markers. So if your systolic um, blood pressure is, you know, say 155, well, we know that's a higher risk. So we'll screen for that risk. And then on the back of that, we can make recommendations to the individual on an empowered um, direction or action. And a slightly different, perhaps more introspective question, but from what you've seen in your role as now CEO of AHI and from your experience today, what kind of impact do you feel this technology is having on the way we think about and approach preventative healthcare. You've slightly touched on it already, but I'm curious to know if you had any pushback either from consumers, users, from investors perhaps? I think there's a, a very healthy amount of scepticism as there should be. You know, I think there's, um, there's, there's, as with any new pathway or new technology, there's um, the early adopters and these are the, the avid enthusiasts that will give anything a go. Um, this is easy, more easy to do because it's contactless, um, it's at a distance, it's not embeddable, it's not invasive and, and penetrating the skin or anything. Um, it's not uncomfortable. So it's very easy for people to give this process a go using a face scan as an example or a body scan. Um, so it's a 30-second process. And for that reason, we've got very high interest in, uh, in the user function. Um, and I think the other part of it is that there are some metrics now that are more commonplace or more commonly understood in general population. So we're, if you dial back 20 years to ask people how much sleep they had and did they know what a REM cycle was, the answer would be no. Whereas now I think with that quantified self, that's getting more commonplace. People understand body fat. People understand blood pressure. And so these are very easy markers to say high or low or where you sit against population norms. And so the, the user adoption has been very good. Um, 
And, you know, when you can present that with a comparison, for example, with a, a Garmin or an Apple Watch heart rate, which they probably have on their wrist anyway, and you can say, hey, look, it's exactly the same, um, that, that's a proof point. And, and therefore, people go down the rabbit hole towards a full um, use case or assessment. From a, um, a buyer or a medical fraternity perspective, um, the, the evidence is building. And, you know, by nature, and this is, again, your world, Grace, where um, you look at the, the the army of literature that's been out there with you know double blind peer reviewed scientific um, war chests of information, and and because that's building on a lot of this technology, um, there is there's still a, a bit of a belief threshold that needs to be crossed for underwriters and insurance companies, perhaps, or um, or, or large epidemiologists who are looking for population level um, scaled change. Um, so I would say that there's intrigue on the more conservative end and there's excitement at the, the early adopter end of the curve. Well, tying in with that as well, um, and obviously you're based outside of the UK, so I could talk about insurance models and payers, um, which we don't specifically have here under the umbrella of the NHS. But given that sort of early detection intervention, they're critical to improving health outcomes, but they're also critical to reducing costs for payers. Mm. So what kind of ROI are payers seeing as a result of early detection and intervention with your technology? So we're modelling all of this, and, and to and to um, to set the scene a little bit, the, the the outcome of this first product that we're launching as an integration um, is is in the throes of going out to first users at scale at the moment. So it's still yet to be done. We haven't seen this come back um, in this in this combined technology. Um, that being said, on the the research articles and journal publications that we already have on the components, um, we can see that. We've got reduction in waist-to-hip ratios, reduction in BMI, reduction in smoking, reduction in sugar intake. And so combining all of these together, we can see that end-to-end solution modelling out very, very strongly. Um, there's a Being based in Singapore, there's a model at the moment per 100,000 um, population per capita, uh, there's an ROI of $7.9 million per year uh, for early screening and intervention just for metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. So you, you cascade that out against a population of, um, you know, five and a half million here or 30 million Australians or, you know, the, the, the quantums across Europe or the US, um, the ROI just becomes undeniable. And so even if you're point, you know, a fraction of a percent out on that, um, you're still up uh, by a long, long way. It's in the billions and trillions of dollars over time. And sort of focusing now on your role specifically as CEO and from a strategy perspective, can you tell me a little bit about the thinking behind your recent acquisitions and how they fit into AHI's overall strategy going forward? So the, the strategy from the, uh, the, the original company founder is, is really um, has been a, a roll-up over the last eight years. So it was incorporated in 2014. It listed on the Australian Stock Exchange 2015. Um, and I've been recently appointed in the last four months as CEO following the acquisition um, and the, the quest there is to try and replicate that initial GP consult on a phone um, as much as possible to bring less episodic interaction with healthcare and more proactivity to healthcare because people are more comfortable with their phone than they are with a stranger poking and prodding and asking in questions, right? Um, so the, the strategy here is to try and give people the comfort and the, that evergreen access to some insights around healthcare. And if you can do this in the privacy of your own home in a matter of seconds or minutes to give you an insight and then to have some counsel on, you know, your risk profile's climbing, but it's okay for now, or your risk profile's really high and you need to do something about this. So you can either book in with a partner telehealth provider, or you can take this report, which outlines um, indications in a rag fashion and some, um, some markers uh, directly to a physician. And so I think with that comfort and accessibility, 
the the strategy here is is probably at its inception point from um, now that we've got all the componentry, we're integrating it. And uh, my job is to make sure that happens as quickly and seamlessly as possible uh, because the commercial interest is um, is astounding. It's absolutely frightening the amount of um, different types of payers and segments um, and users that are looking for a type of technology here um, because the, the world of healthcare is, is a quagmire of confusion, of siloed information, of difficulty of, of access, of frustration of just waiting lines and, and, and sick rooms. So having that virtual distance, we're very comfortable now following the pandemic to use our phone for different um, exchanges. Uh, and in fact, more people are using their mobile phone for mHealth or digital health purposes as they are for online banking. So that, that user adoption and comfort is absolutely there. Um, and it's about um, making that in a, in a user-friendly and you know highly valuable, immediately impressive product user experience for um, for, for mass growth and mass adoption right now. And we're on a pretty good momentum, I've got to say. Well, that's great to hear. And I think I was interested by what you mentioned about healthcare being this effective quagmire and it's chaotic and can be very confusing, particularly when you're operating in different countries. Um, and one question I wanted to ask was about your patents, because obviously this sounds like an incredible technology with enormous potential, but you obviously want to be able to protect that as well. And from what I understand, AHI holds patents in multiple countries all over the world. You're constantly adding to that. But how do you essentially secure patents for this technology? How do you protect it? Um, and how do you see the intellectual property, the IP evolving over the coming years as you develop that strategy? So how is that we have a very big uh, IP lawyer bill? <laughs> we, ha- we have some of the best counsel in the world for this. Um, and when we're bringing in new technologies, um, there's, there's technology and there's process um, considerations that we have. And it's a constant focus. It's a constant priority for us. Um, we've, got, uh, we've got to not only attain those patents, but we've got to defend those. Uh, and then uh, we've got to make sure that we're fighting the right fight. So um, being a, a strong patient portfolio, essentially as an IP or a technology business is a, is a cornerstone. Um, it's what's recognized in public markets. It's what's recognized by institutional investors and strategic partners. So we work very hard to make sure that that's at the front edge of what the industry is doing or trying to do. Um, the the luxury that we have now of of a team that's you know growing in, approaching what well, we've gone past 50 close you know approaching 100 staff globally um, over the over the next probably year year and a half um, is that we've got different geographical requirements and you know you could look at any corner of our company and go that's an amazing capability in that mind um, from biomathematical um, uh, biomathematical experts all the way through to MDs and doctors epidemiologists you know your your part of the world data scientists um, uh, computer vision engineers, which I didn't honestly know that that was a thing um, until a few years ago. Like the the, the art that we've got is um, is about um, translating that into a, a process, and and we use very very good um, IP counsel on encasing that, um, and therefore and then protecting that. We will continuously add to it. Uh, it's certainly one of our priorities, and it's something that um, is is appreciated when we're discussing. Uh, grand scale deployments with you know future and current partners because population health needs to be unique right you can't have the next person over the road offering the same thing um, because there's there's just nothing premium or prestigious or, or unique about that so we work very hard at it and on more of a personal level what would you say are the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome with the business look I think time zone is is one of them we 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 do have um, 
stuff all over the place. And, uh, you know, especially coming into not just building a company from ground up, but in inorganic um, uh, connections means that you've got to quickly develop relationships and rapport um, and you've got to garner respect and you've also got to learn where the, the expertise lies within each individual because every human's different and every professional has their optimum environment. And so getting to know people um, at an individual level, understanding where those, um, where those teams work the best um, is, is hard in the own right, you know, if you're in the, around the same desk and water cooler. But when you're adding time zone and, and majority virtual to a lot of those conversations, I would say that's probably the most difficult part where I think if you're smart, you can turn a five-day working week across all of the time zones into six. Um, but if you're not efficient, um, you know, that, that five-day working week can easily be three. And so uh, it's, a, it's a constant learning phase. And on the flip side, what would you say has been the biggest contributor to your success? Oh, enthusiasm. You know, I think that it's one thing to have expertise, but if you've got people that don't believe what you're trying to do, uh, then it, it's very hard to motivate unmotivated people. Um, the, the luxury that we have and the most exciting part is that everyone across our team believes and, and not only do they believe, they're darn good at what they do. So getting people to um, to put the shoulder to the wheel and to um, and to you know to really test things out um, we've got to push boundaries and it's a lot easier to do that in a state of excitement and a state of belief than it is where you're you know trudging yourself up the stairs to your, your home office every day or, or into the into your physical office as the case may be so the, the the team that we've got and the belief and the energy inside it right now um, product driven um, is is astounding and that's the best part about it would you do anything differently if you were to start all over again? How far back's the start line? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me. Look, I, I think um, everyone has their trials and tribulations. And, you know, sure, there's probably some decisions and some approaches that over the years I would look at and go, with retrospect, might approach that slightly differently. Um, but in saying that, there's, there's a lot of experience now and, and being able to work through difficult situations, be able to navigate um, very complex and um, and and precious sometimes. Um, you need to go through the hard parts to get to the good bits. And so, I'm going to say no. Um, but I might even come back to you and say, do you know what, Grace? I, I I do know of one thing that I would change. But at the moment, nothing jumps off the top of my head. Great people, great direction. I love what I do, um, and it's it's always been a core drive for me is to put health into um, into a business. And those are two things that I love dearly. Well, maybe slightly different take on that question is, would you give any advice to your younger self to sort of maybe guide you to avoid certain mistakes or are you quite happy that you've made certain mistakes in your life that potentially led to where you are now? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, m mistakes are your learning opportunities. Um, and I was once told never give advice unless you're asked three times for it. Um, so on the assumption that I have been asked by my, by my younger self what those uh, that three-time question of, of what advice would I give, it would be um, – back yourself uh, and and work with the people that you want to work with because um, when you're in the trenches, when you're trying to overcome problems, when um, when you're really trying to, to get through something, doing that with people you like and you trust and you believe in is, um, is a lot easier to do. And equally, when you celebrate, it's a darn sight more fun when you're doing that around people you like. And so I, I have been very lucky with that and, and I think it would just be to reinforce that is that um, some things are out there and sound too good to be true, and they are. Um, so work with the people on the same mission and 
if you can do that with a you know a smile on your face as much as possible, get the job done, be firm, fair, and clear, and uh, and you hopefully end up in a pretty good place. And finally, what's next on the horizon for AHI? Is this sort of developing new technologies, innovations? Is it scaling? How do you see the company evolving in the years to come? It's one word is growth, and growth in every sense of of business operation. We've now got a scientific and a labs team, which I've I've never ever had the luxury of working with before. Um, and again, these minds from um, from science, from technology, from academia are all coming together to ideate and to prove out proof of concept ideas that seem like science fiction in a lot of ways. Um, so I think in a in a product development sense, we've we've certainly got velocity around our innovation. Um, we're front of the curve. We're trying to push boundaries with digital um, and the way that digital is used by um, the very conservative sector of healthcare. Um, growth in the user adoption and the um, and the geographical reach and volume of of people using the technology for sure. We've got some very late stage um, agreements with with companies that are about to deploy to um, substantial populations in the in the millions. Um, and then from a, a commercial standpoint, you know, part of my role is to ensure that not only are we well capitalised, but we're returning um, a return back to shareholders uh, and equity holders in the form of, of an accretion in the share price. So um, we need to do that through sales. We need to do that through technology defensibility around patent portfolios. Uh, we need to do that across new jurisdictions and new partners. Um, and really to keep people interested and excited, you've got to have a good product to start with. Um, you've got to keep feeding it. And so to have the full cycle across labs, across product, across engineering, across partnerships and, and growth um, and customer success, um, it's, a, it's a year of growth. So watch this next six months, watch this next 12 months. It's going to be fun. And I've asked you, is there any advice that you'd share with your younger self? But perhaps is there any other advice other than what you've shared here today that you would give to other would-be entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs just starting out, confused as hell at the early stages of their journey? What would you say to them? Look, I sometimes look at, and, and some of the days are long, um, and, uh, and sometimes you're not always at um, uh, every single um, of your children's friends' birthday parties or doing drop-offs and things like that. And, and part of that sacrifice is that um, you you hopefully at the other end you get a return and that is in time and freedom and and all of the things that people get into an entrepreneurial project for. Um, I, th- I think the realization that I've got is that because the world is the way the world is right now, a lot of people are still putting in those hard yards. And if you've got a bit more youth or a little bit more um, uh, resource on your side, then use it because time is the scarce resource and it's an age-old cry. There's nothing new about this. Use it wisely. Spend it with the projects that you want to to create things with. Um, and give it a go because you never know if you don't give it a go. And I, I just am really happy to be able to say I've given a few things a shot. Not all of them will work by any means. I've got a few, <laughs> few dead skeletons or graves there. Um, but the ones that have worked um, are absolutely worth it. And I'm, I'm lucky to have great friends and a great family um, and a business that I'm, I'm as passionate as hell about. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Founders Keepers. And if you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review on whatever listening platform you are using. Be sure to tune in next time for another Founders Story.